Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the CX Cast. In the studio today, I have research associate and CX Cast producer Wesley Patterson. Hey, Wes, thanks as always for being in the studio. No problem. Happy to be here. And joining me is my colleague on the Future of Work research team, researcher Nick Monroe. Hey, Nick. Hey, really happy to be here. Appreciate the time. Yeah, well, we are excited to have another conversation on diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I thought, Nick, that we could start by you telling us how you've come to advocate for DEI. You've you've been on the show before, so folks may be familiar that you are familiar with this topic, but I'd also like to go back and hear how your background has informed this advocacy and passion. I would say that I've been doing this work even before I knew that there was such a thing as DEI. And what I mean by that is like, I've always had a pretty strong inclination toward social justice related topics. And I think that that's come up in different parts of my life, both in kind of like the volunteer work and fundraising work I did even in high school, to the tutoring work I did when I was at Oberlin College, working with kids in the community there to kind of like help them, you know, pass their courses or become better readers or the different things that we were working on. After I graduated college, I was a teacher in Chicago for a few years. It's always been, even prior to my having this conceptualization of this thing that we call diversity, equity, and inclusion. I've always kind of gravitated toward the topic. And really, it's been kind of like a lifelong thing for me, namely because I actually had the fortune, even as early as the first grade, I had a a teacher that was very front and center about uh, racial injustice. So she really kind of found a way to integrate that idea or that concept, even in the minds of a six or seven-year-old. And it's something that really kind of like started the ball rolling for me, this I don't know if fascination is the right word, but being deeply perplexed by racial inequality and racism that really kind of impacted the way I I grew up and uh, entered the professional world after I graduated from college. And I don't think, I don't want to like come off as if that's a necessary component. It's a part of my story. I think that the learning from my experience could be is that I, I do think we all have our own schemas and experiences that allow us to empathize with other people. You know, I'm a cis, straight, middle-class, white guy, able-bodied. You know, I operate in a lot of different kind of realms of, of privilege. So I don't necessarily have any kind of like direct experience for a lot of the topics that I engage with or try to help improve in the world. So I think like trying to find ways to, you know, establish that relevancy or or establish that connection, I think is a a really great seed for folks to uh, to draw on whether or not we're fortunate enough to have a really great first grade teacher like I did and opportunities to volunteer. I don't think that that's a a prerequisite. That's just my story. I think everybody, every single person has a story that could be relevant. Yeah, I think that's important because I would say that most of the people in power or even the power of numbers in powerful organizations do not have that prerequisite and maybe skew towards feeling less comfortable, not so much participating in a DEI event, joining a DEI event, but leading one or supporting someone or encouraging someone to lead one or actually changing corporate policy. Which makes me wonder, whose job is it in these 
powerful organizations to care about DEI? Is it someone like yourself who is historically in power (laughs) or is it the customer that drives the demand or is it someone else? So this is a philosophical question that I think every individual does need to answer for themselves. I'll give you my opinion. I do think that by and large, most people believe in the concept of equity believe in the concept of justice, believe in the concept of fairness, in many ways, believe in the concept of equality. So I, I do think that that's a common thread, regardless of where you start your journey and what your responsibility is. I think the question really, before even answering who whose responsibility it is and what their responsibility is, is really kind of like understanding almost like what are you willing to tolerate in the world in which you operate in? So I interviewed the CEO of the DEI consultancy uh, last week, and she talked about really this idea of what level of inequities she works with companies, CEOs, C-suites with pretty big Fortune 100, Fortune 500 type companies. And one of the things that she approaches her clients with is this idea of like, well, what level of inequity are you comfortable with? So she almost kind of flips it puts really kind of almost the power, the the conceptual power into the hands of the people that have to make those decisions. And I think it's actually a very kind of clever way to engage that conversation because again, by and large, I sincerely believe most people generally believe in justice and equity and fairness. So the question is, is how much are you going to be willing to tolerate within your company, within your community, within your family's communities, you know, within the world, et cetera. So I do think that that's a better first question before we get to the question of, well, who should be doing this work and and why should they be doing this work and how they should be doing it? And not to dodge your question, like I do think that there's a big role for literally everyone to play, or at least there's potentially a big role for everybody to play. Some folks are more or less invested in the topics at, at hand. Some are more or less skilled at being able to kind of like navigate these spaces. Like I I know that the topic of DEI in particular is very uncomfortable for many folks to engage with because they're afraid of getting it wrong. And that's normal and that's natural. I think the thing to remember about that is like we can't use that fear of failure or fear of getting it wrong to make us like completely disengage with the topic. I'll leave it at that. Did I answer your question there? Yeah, Wes, did you want to jump in? Sure, yeah. Going a little bit deeper into the idea of discomfort in the workplace, what are some different tools or methods that maybe you've used yourself or you've seen other people use to combat that type of fear, I guess, as you're describing? So I think all of this work is really an exercise in empathy. And I do think in some ways the word or the concept of empathy has been almost conceptually diluted, I think, in today's world. Yes, I agree. I think there's even kind of like tension to unpack there because like I think it's incredibly powerful and transformative of an experience or of a way to kind of navigate the world. I think that we need to unpack the fact that there's much more saying of empathy than doing of empathy or experiencing empathy. And so I think we need to call that out. I don't think that that can be ignored. Now, that being said, getting off my high horse here, I do think that recognizing that your path or your journey through engaging with DEI and the kinds of tools to to get to your question, Wes, really has to start with putting yourself in the other person's shoes. 
in my opinion, if you're starting with how this impacts you, and again, I'm speaking from a place of privilege here. So I'm saying this isn't kind of like a end all be all recommendation. I'm speaking about myself here. I do think that starting from a place of what's it like to be in someone else's shoes? What does that feel like? What is that experience like? What does that person need or care about? What is it like to kind of navigate through the world or through the workplace as that person? I think it has to start there. I think within that, and to get more kind of specific on the on the tools that you asked about, I think starting with empathy, I think the next part is is asking questions. The reason why I started with the empathy piece is because just asking questions isn't a panacea, meaning I think that you can actually ask questions in an unempathetic way. I think you can ask questions in a way that doesn't necessarily consider how it impacts the other person that's being questioned. And so one of the things that we hear a lot about, or I, certainly I've heard a lot about, is this this concept of emotional labor. You know, so I'm a white guy. If I approach a, a person of color and, and ask them a question to kind of explain how racial inequality impacts them, there's emotional labor there, right? There's potentially a rekindling of trauma, potentially. And so I, I do think that question asking rather than, than telling is an essential tool, but I do think that that empathy piece needs to come first. How does my question impact the person that I'm asking a question of? So those are two things that, that I would start with there. Angelina, I'm curious, you reacted very strongly to the empathy thought. I'm curious what you think about that. I did. A couple things came to mind. One is often we talk about getting empathy for customers through a listening program. I don't think that that's empathy. I think that's maybe sympathy, maybe just understanding to your point what questions we should be asking. There's just so much history behind anyone who is at a disadvantage in our systems that we can never begin to understand that history from a firsthand perspective. And we've also sometimes seen that by trying to put ourselves through the same experiences that they have had, it can almost put us off from it versus being open and willing to think about ways to help from a position of being helpful because it's it's about acknowledging this power you have as someone that hasn't gone through that experience and how you are therefore positioned to help them. So yeah, I get a little fired up on the empathy front because the word is just tossed around in business so much these days. It's not that it isn't worth a, the old college try, but there's opportunity to think beyond just that word. It's not a panacea. Yeah, I think you're right. And it, it's also not a synonym for anything. It's actually its own thing. It's very much like love or honor, or, you know, like it's right. It can't just be thrown in as just another exercise or just another word. Like it really is. It means something, at least in my opinion, it does. So you're a trained sociologist. When you find yourself working with large corporations, how do you even untangle these systems of biases? Is this more like an organizational psychology question or is this a sociology question or an anthropology question? <laughs> so certainly both. And I would say that much of my sociological training would probably resemble that of a cultural anthropologist. But my training aside, certainly both. You know, when we're talking about sociology, we're really trying to think about how individual behaviors are a function of something greater than the individual and how the individual then interacts with that thing that is greater than them. 
So how that applies to business environment, in my view, is, is recognizing that we didn't get to where we are today by accident. And it doesn't have necessarily have to be by design, but the inequalities that we see today didn't just arrive because some people tried harder than others or some people are more talented than others or smarter than others. Like it didn't, it didn't happen that way. A sociologist's opinion, again, or at least some sociologists' opinion would be that this arrived from a, from larger kind of processes and groups of people and how inequalities kind of emerged out of that. So if you look at even something like how people are hired for the jobs that they get in, in corporations, and I'm, I'm speaking about white-collar type jobs, the, the jobs that often require a college degree. Well, if we look at who's even entering the talent pool or entering even kind of like the possibility of being able to kind of apply for a job, a lot of that is pre, I won't say, pre, I will not say predetermined, but I would say a lot of those decisions or, or circumstances happen long before a person is even able to apply for that in the first place. I think that plays out very much along social class lines, meaning if you grew up in a zip code, and there's data to, to support this, if you grew up in a, a zip code that had a kind of a median income below the, the median income, the American income, that very much determines the type of resources you have, the types of educational opportunities that you have, which then kind of plays out when you start applying for college, what colleges are even uh, available to you or an, an option for you to do. As we all well know, like college is very expensive. So even if you do everything right, just kind of the, you know, hitting the unlucky number in the lottery, um, at least in this situation of not having access to those same kind of educational opportunities determines where you are by the time you're 22, 23 years old and sh shapes in many ways your entire career path. And this isn't an accident. This actually happens by many different deliberate choices in many different parts of society. So it's, it's political decisions. These are individual decisions where we decide to live. Um, those who even have the opportunity to decide where they live, right? You know, as I mentioned already, I'm a middle-class white dude with a, like a good, you know, job. Like my wife and I have very many options as to where we can live. So if we want to send our child to a, you know, a well-resourced school, that's something we can do. That's not something that everybody has the opportunity to do. And so kind of getting to the sociolo sociologist perspective, I think it's actually how do we make the individual aware of the fact that, yeah, maybe you worked really hard and you have a ton of skills, but that doesn't mean that everybody else who isn't where you are doesn't also have those skills and that hard work and that drive and that desire to do it. So it's a bit of a ramble, but I think that that's one way to approach the sociologist's take on this topic. I feel like that's a really, really cool approach. And it actually brings the thought back to a um, documentary that I was telling Angelina about called Coded Bias, where a black MIT researcher was able to really hone in on the biases that are in our AI and algorithmic systems. And it's basically mapping all the biases that we have currently to date in our society. And so a lot of the biases you just mentioned, especially around awareness and kind of how you can gain certain types of knowledge and such. And so I'm wondering, I guess kind of getting back to a little bit of more actual tools or different types of methods people can take away, what are some of the main levers or main types of areas of concern that we have currently within DEI? And what's kind of a good ground floor for people to start on that are just starting this work? 
everyone comes into this conversation with different personal resources, different schemas, different opportunities to leverage or wield their own kind of like power and influence. So I sincerely believe whether or not you're a member of the C-suite or you're just a, you know, an individual contributor who doesn't, you know, manage anyone or have budget, you have a sphere of influence that every single day you have an opportunity to do something about. And I don't mean that. I think that can very easily be taken in an overly idealistic way, like, oh, hey, we're all in this together. That's not what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say is, is that we should all feel empowered to influence the different spheres that we operate in, either within the businesses that we work for or the businesses that we spend our money with. So for example, I'm a researcher at Forrester. I don't manage anybody. My job is my job, right? And I have different opportunities, some of which I kind of pushed for, some of which I leveraged when they kind of came to me or, or did something about when they came to me. So for example, you know, there were there was a call for in 2020 to join the Diversity and Inclusion Council, right? That's something that was presented to me or presented to folks within the company. And I, I raised my hand, but kind of also within that, that opportunity probably came to light for me because of the work that I had been doing beforehand, expressing like, hey, we have opportunities to focus on how does gender impact brand work and, and marketing and the stories that brands are telling. And so I did a report with Depanjan at the end of 2019, focusing on those very questions, right? That's my sphere of influence, right? I'm fortunate enough to be a researcher, so I do get to explore questions. But that path wasn't kind of laid out for me, right? Like I controlled what I was able to control. I leveraged my interests and passions around equity to help shape a research path, right? So that's just one example that I have. But I think that the more influence you have within an organization, I think the more opportunities you have to scale your contribution, so I can speak about mine and, you know, as a person with limited authority, I guess, within the organization, like I was able to kind of take advantage of the opportunities that I had and, and have to move this uh, work forward. Yeah. And I'll note that even with limited authority on paper by hosting company-wide events on DEI, you certainly have magnified your voice and magnified others' voices. So it's clear that there are paths you can choose that will help magnify the voice of those who are trying to further these objectives around DEI. Before the conversation started, uh, or at least the, the recorded conversation started, we were talking about this question of should. You know, I'm very torn on what should people do. It's hard enough to worry about myself thinking about what other people should be doing is a, is a you know a different question. But that being said, I mean, I think to your question or the point you made about magnification, like I do think folks in positions of privilege, whatever that might be, should be elevating the voices or providing opportunities to elevate the voices of folks who maybe don't have as much privilege in a particular situation. So, you know, even whether or not you have formal authority, you do have opportunities to elevate the voices of folks who might be kind of more relatively marginalized relative to, to your position. And I think that that can happen anywhere in an organization. So I think that you have opportunities to scale that when you have some kind of formal authority. Right. So, like, I think that a person in a executive 
role or senior management role as opportunities to get feedback and input from a much larger segment of the population than someone maybe in an individual contributor role. Meaning when someone in senior management asks a question, a lot of people have to pay attention, right? Or a lot of people, hopefully, I guess, in theory, are paying attention. There's a micro and a macro element to it and probably kind of like a middle tier element to it. The micro is kind of what are you doing in your own space? So like, for example, if you're in a meeting and you notice someone being talked over, how do you kind of reframe the meeting or kind of refocus the meeting to allow it to help that person's voice be heard? How do you ask questions of that person to kind of like help them, you know, also find their own voice within a meeting, right? That's a micro interaction. Macro at a, at a company level would be how do we uh, improve our empo- employee listening program to get more directed and actionable feedback from folks who maybe are feeling marginalized in a particular situation. I think humans are pretty predisposed to putting each other in pretty like easy to identify buckets. I think one of the things I'd like to see in the DEI space is really complicating those buckets and recognizing that each of us comes into a situation both with privilege and potential feelings of exclusion or marginalization. So one of my favorites, probably actually call her a hero, is uh, Patricia Hill Collins, a scholar, a sociologist, actually. And she talks about this idea that no one is the oppressor in every single situation and no one is the marginalized in every single situation. And I'm paraphrasing here, but basically the point being like our identities are very complicated. And so some situations you may be privileged and in other situations you may be kind of feel marginalized or excluded. And so how do you kind of recognize those opportunities when you are in that privileged position to pass the microphone is the way I like to think about it, to pass the microphone for to folks who might be feeling marginalized in the situation? I mean, I think that is a perfect example of alternative thinking to this whole empathy panacea as well, to find that you have your own perspectives that can lend themselves, your own experiences that can lend themselves to sympathizing, to being just. Before I sign off, Wes, anything you want to add? I think you covered everything. I really enjoyed the examples that you threw out. And I feel like you really eloquently kind of answered the question of where you can start in the micro and macro view of like what you can do in a meeting versus what you can do inside your company made a lot of sense. and was very heartwarming to hear, especially from someone with your like demographics. Yeah. Nick Monroe, researcher, my colleague on the Future of Work team. Thank you so much as always for joining us and lending your expertise here. Thank you both. I appreciate the invite and you know the opportunity to talk about this. I don't take that lightly. And Wes, our producer, thanks for lending your thoughts and questions as well. No problems. Happy to help and ask some questions. Well, everyone, thank you for joining us on the CX Cast today. We went a little deeper on DEI. I hope it brought some new frameworks and mindsets for you. Until next time, thank you and goodbye. <laughs>